Welcome to Deep Color, the oral history project and podcast series that features artists and arts professionals discussing their work, ideas, and lives, offering listeners a forthright and unique understanding about the process, experiences, and people behind the artistic pursuit. My name is Joseph Hart. I produce and facilitate this series. Each recording is casual, long-form, and unscripted. Deep Color is independently produced and a free resource for listeners. Please help sustain this project by becoming an official patron through the support page at deepcolorpodcast.com. There are very reasonable donation tiers for supporters to choose from and feel good about. In doing this, you acknowledge the time and labor that goes into creating Deep Color and appreciate its value. You can also help by sharing Deep Color within your community and by rating and reviewing wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for helping to make these conversations about art and the creative process possible. This episode profiles Nikita Gale. Nikita uses ready-made objects, things like microphone stands and cables, musical instrument components, lighting systems and trusses, as frameworks to make sculpture and installation that explore the exchanges and barriers between audience and performer. A new installation by Nikita titled Private Dancer, which is currently on view at the California African American Museum, features a collapsed truss and set of automated theater lights that have been programmed to react to the music from the album Private Dancer by Tina Turner. The actual audio has been removed, leaving viewers with only a visual reference of Turner's music, alongside the mechanical hums and whizzes of the automated light system. Other works like the Ruiner series feature terry cloth towels that have been covered with cement and stretched, wrapped, and pulled over steel pipe armatures to harden in place referencing the cold architecture of public venues and makeshift soundproofing. In all of Nikita's work, there is careful research and planning, thoughtful consideration on how materials can be ambient, and an interest in how silence and noise can operate as social and political positions. This conversation was recorded remotely. I was in Brooklyn, New York, which is the unceded land of the Lenape people. Nikita was in Los Angeles, which is the unceded land of the Tongva people. to talk about live music experiences. Uh, your work often uses the gear and spectacle of live performances, gestures, you know, things like mic stands and musical instruments and uh, uh, lights and stage equipment. It's a basic question, but can you talk about any formative concert or performances from when you were a kid? So formative concert experiences. Okay, the first one, I barely remember. I remember like being in the parking lot either before or after this concert. But uh, when I was like, I must have been six or seven years old. And uh, my parents took me to a California Raisins concert. Oh, man. Like people in costumes. When, like, yeah, the California Raisins were on tour and there's like these people (laughs) in costumes. I remember that. I don't really remember anything about it besides just the the visual, probably the visual. Yeah, but I was so young. Um, 
What type of music? Yeah, you don't remember, but I'm just like, what type of music did the California Raisins play? Like Beach Boys or something? Well, they played that um, "Heard It Through the Grapevine" song. Oh. That was their. That was the thing. That was the one they would. They would. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. That was their the, go-to. Uh, yeah, I mean that that uh, uh, conceptually makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was very. It was like early conceptual art. Really, there you go. About it. Um, and so, but the next concert which is like the first big pop concert kind of like stadium style concert I went to was when I was eight years old um and I also spent the early part of my childhood in Alaska I was born in Anchorage and so this was at um it's at the stadium that's not really used much anymore in Anchorage but it was an MC Hammer world tour concert and so it was MC Hammer and TLC and Boyz II Men opened for MC Hammer. That sounds like a pretty good show. Yeah. I mean, the bummer was that TLC was supposed to perform that night, but I think T-Boss, like someone was sick and so it was just Boyz II Men, but it was still incredible. Yeah. And um, I imagine um, there was quite a production around those performers in terms of like staging and lights yeah. and... Yeah. Uh, the whole nine. Absolutely. Yeah. And I was looking at some early footage, like footage from other tour dates of that tour. And it's really interesting to kind of notice how dark the arenas were, like on the audience side, because nobody has cell phones or anything. So it's just this completely black space surrounding the stage. Yeah. Um, which, you know, I think there's a like a really important component or like relationship or role of darkness in, in relationship to these kinds of performances too, like what that implies um, in relation to the stage or like what you're seeing. Um, but yeah, that MC Hammer concert. And I went to that concert with um, a family friend who she and I were the around the same age. She was the god like another goddaughter of my godparents. And um she was deaf. And so I remember like when we would play together, she would teach me, she was teaching me like American Sign Language, just like the the alphabet. I remember going to this concert with her and us discussing like how she would be experiencing the music. And she basically explained that she would like she experienced the music mostly through the vibration. Yeah, I was gonna say it's probably physical, right? Yeah, it's like a yeah. very physical experience, which is what sound is, you know. But as an eight-year-old, I didn't know that. But it really kind of shifted how I experienced that show, too. Mm -hmm. Like I felt like I was much more aware of what the sound was doing to my body just out of a curiosity of like what her experience was. Yeah, that's great. That's yeah. great. Uh, yeah. Last kind of question connected to this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, do you play any instruments? I do play instruments. Yeah. 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 My mom was a music teacher for most of my childhood. So she was a piano teacher specifically. So I really resisted 
learning piano. Yeah, piano's like probably I, not the one. <laughs> yeah, it's like not the one. It's just like early rebellious streak. But um, I did like I basically started teaching myself how to play guitar when I was maybe 15, 14 or 15. And a lot of that had come out of, um, I don't know, this kind of thing that was happening, I guess, in the late 90s, mid to late 90s, where there are all these like women musicians playing guitars. And there was something about like even having that image or like the point of reference that really I think prompted me to pick up the guitar. A lot of like PJ Harvey. PJ Harvey. Yeah. I was was thinking, is this acoustic or electric? Yeah. It's actually both because it's like acoustic. It's like Sheryl Crow, Strong Enough was the first song, the first riff I taught myself on acoustic guitar. That's great. And then like, I do a lot of noise stuff too. Like a lot of, you know, in my videos, I do a lot of like sound design. Yeah. Yeah, I want to talk about sound and noise with you and silence down down cool. when we get into like yeah. concepts and stuff. But let's talk about process a little bit. Um, you know, you use a, a range of materials, a lot of ready-made stuff. Uh, this includes, uh, I think you call them consumer technologies. Uh, and I would even be more specific as as a like viewer, uh, and maybe just to give context for listeners, uh, that that would include like lighting systems uh, 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 and, and the trusses that lighting systems are, are set up for, for, for performances like concerts, mic stands, um, all the cords and cables that are connected to uh, setting these things up. Um, and then there's other works uh, and, and, and musical instruments are actually gestures in your work too, right? And, and I feel like uh, foam or packing foam uh, as an object is in there as well. Um, and there's different combinations of all these things depending on on the project you're working on or the installation that you're making. Um, and then other works, uh, and I'm thinking of the Ruiner series now, um, you know, those feel more sculptural. I mean, they're installations, but they're and yeah. they're all sculptures, right? They're, yeah. they're three-dimensional. Yeah, they're all sculptures. They live on walk the around wall. Them. Yeah. Um, yeah. But those are like steel pipe that that is sort of, made in some sort of skeletal armature to drape what look like bathroom towels over. Uh, yeah, so that it's it, a yeah, go ahead. Cloth. Yeah. It's yeah. terry cloth. Yeah. Which is, and, the, yeah, bath towel material. Right. But I was literally using towels in some earlier, early iterations oh, cool. in other installations. Cool. And yeah. there's, and there's plaster involved to probably stiffen those towels up. Uh, and, um, yeah. So my question, like as I go down that sort of short list or or medium-sized list of different materials and ways of working, I'm wondering how you decide which materials you want to use to execute a particular idea. Um, And if if the idea dictates the form or maybe the form dictates the idea. Um, I know there's other things to consider like context, like where the work's going to go and like... Right specific stuff, but how do you decide which materials you want to use? You know, it's, it's always like a fairly, um, I won't say arduous, but a fairly intense kind of research process for me. And the ruiners for me actually represent like a culmination of 
years of research around materials and like the histories of these objects that I'm using now. Um, and I guess where I could start with that narrative around the materials or like the story of the materials is when I was in grad school. So I went to grad. The reason I live in LA now is because I went to grad school at UCLA and someone had given me um, some advice pretty early on, actually several, you know, mentors, um, when I was living in Atlanta, gave me the advice of, um, you should go to grad school in a city where you might want to live afterwards, because that's kind of, you know, the people you go to school with your cohort and your professors will eventually become your peers in your community, in your network. And I really kind of took that to heart. It wasn't like I had like, I was like being really premeditated about it, but I sort of knew, you know, who I wanted to work with and kind of was really excited and turned on by a lot of the practices that I'd seen come out of the UCLA program from, you know, the seventies, eighties onward. Um, it's like a really incredible history. And so I went there and I took this crit class. It was this group critique that was facilitated by Andrea Frazier. And there was this idea that um, Andrea was kind of at the, I would say sort of like in the early stages of exploring or experimenting with about the ways that um, artworks, like when we're looking at artworks in groups, the works influence group behavior as much as an individual in the group might be able to do that. And so it was this really um, just sort of disorienting, but also mind-blowing experience of being able to observe in real time the way that content or form of certain works that we were discussing as a group were literally like affecting how people were relating to each other within the group. And so it kind of started to open up this line of inquiry for me around the ways that materials and objects and spaces, despite how ambient they may seem in a space, are actually influencing how we might be relating to each other. Um, and so, like, I'm really interested in this idea of ambient materials or like ambient objects, like a mic stand in a studio or, um, you know, the, the like shitty bath towel that gets tucked under the door for like DIY noise cancellation. You know, it's like all of those materials and like we can get into larger conversations about like architecture and how that divides space and guides certain types of movement and relating. But that experience in grad school really um, prompted many of the, my current interests and explorations around not just audience, but also like recording technologies um, and how like a recording technology 
like a studio, like as a like a site of recording, bears some resemblance for me to like the 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 placement of a sidewalk or something. I'm kind of like rambling a bit, but uh, so I ended up going in a lot of different directions, like with some of these li- like lines of research. In 2018, I started looking at all these images of like rock, con- like early rock concerts and the mm-hmm. crowds and how the crowds were being contained. It was also pairing those with these images of like what I recognize to be very mainstream, recognizable uh, depictions of dissent or protest. Because I was also, it was like right after Donald Trump had been elected. 2017, 2016, 2017. And I just felt so not surprised, but just I was more surprised by the the shock that I was witnessing people have around Trump's election. It's like nothing about that is surprising. <laughs> if you're just aware of how fucked up and racist nearly every institution that people rely on to like maintain society is. And so, um, but like people were in the street and like, you know, they're protesting or whatever. And I just felt like I felt very pessimistic. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't trust the action. Like I didn't trust the images. Um, like I felt like there was this kind of, performance happening like a performance of dissent that had no effect or like end point yeah it seems you know there's that like uh, like the spontaneity of it all like this kind of like burst and release without much regard for like an end goal or an end result almost like i mean since we're talking about like the language of a concert or or like a, a protest. It's like the sometimes what happens when certain types of music hit us, you know, the thrash, the dance, the, the, the mosh, the, the circle that forms. Um, and it's, it's like unplanned and unorganized. Um, I know it sounds like a little bit of that in there. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And mm-hmm. like, it's great that you mentioned, you know, organization because this is where my interest in barricades first started too, because in a lot of those images, one of the common objects that shows up is the sort of like ready-made bike rack barricade. They show up whenever there's been some kind of agreement put in place, right? Between like an institution or like the county government or whoever's like managing the event it's like there's some kind of agreement that has been put in place which is why and it's a control mechanism too yeah these barriers yeah Yeah. absolutely you know it's like a temporary it's like a temporary way that an institution of power extends itself Mm -hmm. temporarily Mm -hmm. um but it's always asking for some kind of cooperation yeah like this is going to go right here and we're going to steer you this way and you're going to be okay with that yeah and, and they're if you cross comically, over that, then we've got problems. Yeah. And they're yeah. comically flimsy, you know, they're purely yeah. suggestive. That's the other thing. And so 
I became really interested in these objects. I started doing all this research about like the etymology of the word barricade and how it has origins in like mid 19th century revolutionary France where people are literally pulling up parts of the street and taking trash and just improvisationally creating these blockades right within right. the within the grid of the city to protect themselves right it um, sounds like um yeah. sorry it sounds like uh yeah. you're good. you know you know to bring it back to this idea of mm-hmm. how matching up materials with a specific idea it sounds like you're mm-hmm. observing stuff around you um yeah. you know you mentioned the the concerts and the protest post you know right after trump mm-hmm. got elected yeah um and then there's research involved. You, you, you're right. researching the word barricade. And then yeah. I imagine these, this just opens doorways to other objects. Um, yeah. And then, yeah. so there's, it sounds like there's this research pro- process and then you right. maybe start collecting these objects and tinkering with them. Is that accurate to say? So it's more like with the, with barricades specifically, I, I do a lot of reading and writing and then the making process. Cause I'm not really a tinkerer. Okay. You know, yeah. although I do learn a lot from, you know, the, the actual process of making and I take lots of notes through that process as well. But I, I'm the, I'm like a planner and a thinker. And then when I go into the studio, it's like, real it's really like quick kind of in and out or even sometimes it's like when I'm working on these larger installations it's like a lot of planning and then two weeks of install and then the work is in the space but the thing about working in that way is that once the work's installed I get to spend more time with it and I get to spend more even more time thinking about it in the conversations that come up around the work like the private dancer piece at can is a great example. It has just, it just opens up so many other um, pathways to explore or ideas that maybe weren't necessarily there in the very beginning. Yeah. It's fascinating to hear. I mean, I, I mean, part of the challenge of an artist is to get that idea out. You know, like yeah. we, we, yeah. we have these things in our head and yeah. they can live there um, sometimes peacefully, sometimes not so peacefully for quite a mm-hmm. while before we start oh, yeah. to do the things we need to do to, to, to get it out into the form. Oh, yeah. Um, so it's really yeah. interesting, uh, and lovely to hear about r- research and writing as mm-hmm. part of the process of drawing that idea out in your yeah. practice. Yeah. And then how, how cool is it to hear? It's like that. And then the, the, like playing with the objects is so short, uh, yeah. And then it's then it then yeah. then the time with the objects expands once it's in the place it's supposed to be, and you can engage yeah. it on a different level and mm-hmm. have shared experience with viewers. Yeah, um, yeah, that's because fascinating. That to hear. Way, yeah, because in that way too, it's all it's also like I never feel like anything is really finished. Like the work always feels open to me in this way. And I had this little drawing that I made probably in 2017 or something that's in my studio. It's this little chart that says um, the work. And then there's, 
this is a, it's a circle. So this is the work, and then there's a line that goes to experience produced by the work, and then there's another line um, that says experiences that produce the work, and then it's just this sort of like never-ending cycle. Mm-hmm. Sounds me. like a Venn diagram slash chart of some sort. Oh, yeah. And yeah. that is also a really big part of my working process, okay. too. Like, if I'm working on something that feels pretty complex, I have all of these Venn diagrams and mind maps. That's how I get a lot of, like, coherent, more linear writing done also. But it's also how I go through the process of eliminating things that maybe... yeah. Editing. That editing yeah. is important. The editing. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're talking about making. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I know you, you you worked with a collaborator on Private mm-hmm. Dancer. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about working with other people to realize your work and oh, yeah. um, what that's like? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, 20, I feel like 2019 and 2020 were really good years for collaboration, collaborating, like having the resources to actually like collaborate and fairly compensate people for their technical skills also um, has been really great. Um, Cause it's always, you know, you always know this in your head, but then when you experience it, it's also just really incredible. But working with other people will almost always produce better work (laughs) at least that's been my experience or it will produce things that you maybe would not have thought of on your own that's great um and so with private dancer i have to shout out um josephine wing uh an incredible lighting designer who i worked with on private dancer and josephine um you know i basically sort of approached josephine because I I used to work at the Natural History Museum in Los Angeles and Josephine was a lighting designer there. And that's how we first met as exhibition techs. Uh, Is that what you did? You were an exhibition tech? Yeah. Yeah. So I was working in AV and media. So a lot of like, you know, being in weird ceilings and behind weird walls and like lighting exhibitions and editing video, like any kind of technical stuff. Dealing threading with, cable like, through small spaces. Threading cable through small spaces, <laughs> managing like really, really gigantic, insanely expensive show control systems, like all that stuff, mm-hmm. which has been very helpful to me, not only developing my work, but creating like installation documents and guidance to museum workers that won't drive them insane and like creating, you know, with a lot of these like really AV intensive installations too, it's like, I don't want someone at the museum to have to turn that thing on and off manually every time the museum opens. So like, it's also helped me just know how to automate stuff too. Yeah. yeah. Like a very just, you know, tactical level. Um, but that's how I met Josephine. Cool, the cool. That's that's a yeah. also a great example of uh, life colliding with art. That intersection, yeah. you know, your day job as an AV tech and the work you're making, you know, there's 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 layering there. 
Um, and I always look, for, I look for those examples and, and, and I, I point them out because I think sometimes we, we forget it's right there kind of in front of us. Oh yeah. And um, like so much of the like cable porn stuff where you're just like, oh my God, look at how these cables are managed. <laughs> That's so beautiful. Like yeah. that definitely, it was just really nice to, I don't know, see all that stuff. The, the guts. You know, we've been talking about some of the ideas in and out of this conversation show so far in your work. Um, but I thought we could waltz more directly into content. And I know um, the idea of silence and noise and how they operate is an idea that you incorporate into your work. And I wonder if we could talk a bit about those. Um, you want to give, give listeners a sense of how you think about silence and noise as positions? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I want to preface this by talking a little bit about my involvement in a practice called group relations work, which is something I was introduced to by, I'm going to shout out Andrea Frazier again. Um, but it's essentially uh, this kind of practice that's based on experiential learning, which means you you're learning about something in real time. And so this particular practice is about learning how authority operates at the group level. It was started like shortly after World War II when a number of people in um, Britain were like, how does something like Hitler's rise to power happen? How does fascism happen when there's so many people who disagree with it? And <clears throat> the answer is often uh, that people aren't speaking up and that creates this kind of vacuum or scenario where these loud voices get to take up more space and are given more authority. So silence operates as a kind of collusion with whatever the shitty thing is that's happening. And um, I feel like that kind of points to a primary interest I have in silence, like this idea of silence as collusion, but also, you know, from like a more kind of like radical political standpoint, I think silence also is very ambiguous in terms of what it might be communicating. Um, silence could mean exhaustion. It could mean planning. Um, it could mean, you know, being so overwhelmed by anger or fear that you're rendered silent. And so I'm also interested in that idea of silence as something that is a way of taking up agency or control of the situation, but it's also something that can be imposed on specific groups or voices, something imposed by the environment or the structures surrounding those identities. What about noise? So there's a little bit about silence. On the other mm -hmm. side of that is noise. Yeah. You know, there... Um, Oh my gosh, there's so many places I can go with this. You know, noise, I feel, also has a similar uh, character to silence. You know, it has a cloaking effect. You know, it could be, it can operate as like a cloak against a certain type of surveillance or watching. Um Noise is also extremely subjective, right? Like there are things that might sound like noise to me just through my kind of 
social, cultural conditioning that may be completely legible to you, you know? Um, And so with noise, there's also this way that it points to questions around what is legible or what is illegible and what gets rendered or identified as noise. Um, And there's a really incredible um, sound theorist, Michelle Shion, who wrote this book, Sound, in the 90s. It was originally written in French and then it was recently translated in like 2015 or 2016 into English. And that's one of those books, you know how you have those things you just always go back to? It's always out, you know, it's always just in my bag or like on the couch. That's like one of those books for me is this book because he talks a lot about the kind of like cultural, social ways that relationships to sound and noise are cultivated. Right, right. I'm thinking, um, you know, we've been talking about crowds and audiences, and I'm thinking the sound or noise that an audience makes. And within that, I mean, it's kind of, that's the cloaking maybe. Like you can't can't hear any one particular thing. It's just a wash. But within that, there are specific voices saying something. Um, What a powerful idea. And then, um, you know, it makes, it makes sense to me as an observer of your work and, and reading about your work that you're using objects that are allegorical in, in these ideas, the mic stand, Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, objects that connect to some sort of performance or, or -hmm. spotlights, things that highlight or amplify a performer. So, um, it all collides in a really lovely way. It's funny when you mentioned the like the noise of the audience, because in 2019, I um, spent the summer at Skowhegan as a participant, and I did this. I don't perform. I'm not a performer, but I was just experimenting with some stuff. And I did this presentation. I'll call it a listening session where I played. It was a 10-minute piece where I played like extremely loud compositions that lasted about a minute. And then the composition would just completely stop. It was almost like the sonic whiplash and it would be totally silent. Was it musical? No, it was all very like, you know, there was no rhythm or anything. It was all fairly loud. Like a lot of it, I described it as like the sound of being sucked through a jet engine or something like these really noisy. So more noise based. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. More noise based. Okay. But then they would completely shut off and you would just be left with the sounds in the room. And it kind of created these interesting shifts in scale where like the sound of the audience became a part of the work. And of course I was thinking about like John Cage's four minutes, 33 seconds, like this idea of, duration as a container for the work and the way that silent like there's there's no such thing as actual silence there's always something to be heard unless you're in an anechoic chamber or something but right right yeah um maybe we could just bookend this section and spend a few minutes talking about the piece private dancer and um i want to i want to um point out to listeners that they should check out 
the conversation that you had with Cameron Shaw, the the now director and curator at at CAM, which yeah. is the California African American Museum. And private dancer is is kind of you know it, it's an object and it's a you know a piece that deals uh, you know directly and indirectly. Correct me if I'm wrong. With Tina Turner, the performer, yeah. um, and oh, yeah. you and you you incorporate the sound. Star. Yeah, your North Star. That's right. She's a bit of a muse for you. Uh, yeah, it's weird. I was like, huh, I've been making a lot of work about Tina Turner. Maybe I'll just lean into this. Yeah. Um, but you you incorporate the idea of silence mm-hmm. uh, in that work pretty specifically because yeah. the the lights that are attached to the trusses are sequenced mm-hmm. to, the, to the soundtrack yeah. of the record Private Dancer. Yep. Um, but we, the the viewer, when they when they look and experience the the, the work, can't hear that soundtrack. So there's like a visual mm-hmm. cue to the soundtrack, but no audio cue. Right. right. Um, and yeah. I think that's like a really great example of kind of the give and take of noise and the give and take of silence. Yeah. Um, because like you say, like even when there's no noise, there is still noise. You can hear the clinking of the lights. Right. And in the, I mean, I've only been able to watch the videos because I'm in mm-hmm. New York, but yeah. I feel like I hear the the whiz of the cooling fans and the lights it's as well, loud. Yeah. which is, which is an eerie sound. It Once is. you like understand what the work is and you hear this whizzing, mm-hmm. it, uh, yeah. really evocative in a, in a, in a jarring, maybe not jarring, but it's sharp. There's a sharpness in there for me mm-hmm. as a viewer. Um, oh Yeah. Um, yeah. so it's a great piece and people should check out that conversation because you and Cameron talk in great depth about the work and some of these other, other ideas we're talking about. I see the language of drawing in some of your sculptures and, mm-hmm. you know, there's, you're, you're organizing space with, with yeah. some of, some of the, the objects that you're using. Mm-hmm. Um, and it feels pictorial at times and, mm-hmm. um, there's a strong sense of line, you know, the, the cord yeah. can, you know, such a you know, almost like a drawing gesture. In fact, I've even shown pictures of some of your work. Is it, is it Interceptor, the work that you showed at at Martos a couple years ago? I've showed that to drawing students as an example of how drawing can be more than just two-dimensional. You know, this is my setup to ask you about colliding the formal with the conceptual Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. how much you consider the formal while you're uh, assembling these or constructing these, whatever word you want, we want to use. Um, but how do you balance the formal and the conceptual? Um, gosh, this is such a great question. I mean, I think a lot about improvisation and the kind of like the way that improvisation in and of itself becomes a kind of genre or a, a, a format for making or like a mode of working. And one of the things that I do for myself in a lot of these kinds of installations where there's something that's more gestural um, is that I create a frame. There's usually a frame that's created. And I tend to create some kind of frame for myself or a grid that then becomes a space within which I can kind of just go nuts and improvise. And make these very, sometimes very like small moves and then other very large moves, you know? And so 
as I, as I'm talking about this, I'm also realizing that I, I work with a lot of fabricators also. And with like, of course, like gallery and museum, um, preparators, but, um, with the Martos piece with interceptor, for example, I mean, that work is really funny because there have been many iterations of that work, probably four or five at this point. And the first one, you know, the, the preparators built the frame. Yeah. Which, which looks also, like it's steel, uh, like wall framing studs, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like steel wall studs. And so, um, there are these kinds of materials that are, you know, very literally used to create like the infrastructure for walls and, uh, within that structure, sort of weaving these cables that are then plugged into the wall. So they have this kind of, they're literally silent, but there's also something about like an understanding of what those cables do. I think most people kind of look at an audio audio cable and understand that it's connecting one thing to another, like it's used to facilitate recording. And so there's a, it often creates the sense of sort of like maybe being on the outside of something or being like in the part of the process where something's being transferred that you don't necessarily have the tools to access whatever that thing is. Yeah. I mean, there's a similar, similar thing happening with the ruiners as well. You know, this kind of predetermined grid structure that's then improvised, Oh my God. Improvised. What the fuck am I saying? This is then improvised with, within. Yeah. So there's something about the frame that I find really useful and just being able to say, okay, everything within this set area is nothing is off limits. Right. Right. And to hear that, that there's different iterations of it too. You know, when you move that piece from to its next place it's not going to be the same so there's this there's this uh, change that happens along the way too yeah and it also becomes this kind of collaborative thing too Mm -hmm. because typically like if i'm not physically there to install the work it's you know an art handler or someone who is like an arts worker who's doing that yeah that's great getting to like improvise and like make their own moves in that space you know, I think talking about sort of how we operate as artists professionally and, uh, is an important topic. And and I'll speak for myself. I love hearing how other people do it. I know listeners of this project love hearing about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder if we could talk about studio visits and okay. and and how you how you prepare for a studio visit mm-hmm. and maybe how you facilitate a studio visit. You know, because everyone kind of yeah. does it a little bit differently. And uh, I'd love yeah. to hear how you do it. This is a great question. I, you know, it's funny. I used to have this very like stringent formal way of doing studio visits where I would have like print out of my CV and like recent press and contact information. And there's like a little takeaway folder that people could take with them after the visit. And I was always really nervous. And I tried to talk about every single thing because I didn't know what people wanted. Um, 
And this is like, you know, immediately after grad school, sort of like 2016, 2017, maybe even 2018. I think just because just through the sheer like frequency of visits and also from just like having more conversations with my friends and starting to feel a little bit more confident in my practice, I let a lot of that more formal stuff go. Like I try to now, like if I have a studio visit, I try, my hope is that like a perfect, in a perfect scenario, it just feels very more conversational, but you know, it depends on who the meeting is with too. That really shifts the tone because, you know, like sometimes it's like a curator comes to your studio and you just feel like you're tap dancing for an hour, you know, <laughs> or like, which is way different you know. than when an artist comes over. Oh yeah. Quantifiably like those are different. my favorite. Yeah. So less formal, more, less more formal. conversational. Yeah. Um, Cause it's like, I start to get nervous when I try mm-hmm. to make things overly formal too. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you like stage your studio? Do you, do you like pull out specific works? Do you hide other works? I mean, that's sort of editing, you know? Yeah. I yeah. recently, I just had a studio visit a couple of days ago where somebody came by and I should also mention my studio is really small. It's okay. like tiny. So I only use it to make work. I'm not in there pondering or researching, you know, it's just like really dusty from all the concrete. (laughs) It's just like not, so it's like a small like production space. Yeah. And, um, so I don't really clean up. I mean, I might clean up a little bit just so it doesn't look like a total dump, but for the most part, I warn people and like, just be warned. This is where I make the, this is my messy space that you're coming into. So I've wiped off one chair that doesn't have any like gray dust on it. And that's where you can sit. And then we can like look at this. And like, typically I will maybe have one thing that's in process there. Cause it's like, I'll make something and then like it leaves the studio. Mm-hmm. And so there, so it's like nice. I think it's nice to have people come in and see something that's sort of in process and we can kind of talk through you know, what's right, going on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. My rules are sort of, I'm not so excited about staging. I think there's mm-hmm. like honesty is really important. And yeah. I think you should do what feels right for you. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I think whenever I try and be someone I'm not in a studio visit, be that mm-hmm. like, I'm really this, right? Yeah. Whatever this yeah. is, it just yeah. doesn't work yeah. for me. And I feel rotten at the end. So yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I identify with like, being less formal. It's, it's hard though, because when you're first kind of starting out, like you mm-hmm. want to do whatever it takes right. to, to no, stick, absolutely. To, to stick in the mind of whoever you're, whoever, whether absolutely. it's a gallerist or a curator, you want to stick. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I think the best way to stick is maybe to like be yourself and talk about life, talk about things around the work, not just yeah. the work, talk about, you know, what's going on, you know, not, not dissimilar from what you and I are doing in this conversation. Yeah, totally. And like that being yourself part is so important because I just think back to some of the visits that I had when I was just so anxious about making a good impression and trying to kind of align 
my performance of myself as an artist with what my fantasy was about what this other person wanted. And yeah. it's just always a disaster. <laughs> when yeah. This yeah, it's true. Happen. Yeah, it's true. There is a lot of theater involved. There, it is yeah. performative. Yeah. And um, we're trying to guess, guess the needs of someone else sometimes. Yeah. And maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe what I'm arriving at in this conversation is stop guessing about what mm-hmm. they need. Think about what you need. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, pull it back. It's like bit. dating or something. It is. I mean, absolutely. you know, absolutely. It's like dating. <laughs> it's really just like yeah. stressful, uh, not so, yeah. not super fun, but it can be fun. Very yeah. person. What about uh, securing or, or um, chasing down showing opportunities? Mm. How, are they, I mean, at this point, I imagine they're kind of coming to you, but how did you start? Mm. You know, Oh my God. I love this question. So my friend P and I, we like text each other all the time. And a couple of weeks ago I was, I can't remember what I was doing, but somehow I had searched something in my inbox and I found these old emails from like 2010 where when I was living in Atlanta, like I started out as a music photographer and then I um, started like taking more conceptual images and I was labeling myself as a conceptual photographer. Oh, wow. And so I was kind of feeling myself, you know, I was like, these photos are pretty good. I'm going to try to get a show. Yeah. And so I found some of these emails where I had created a little portfolio, like a little zip folder, and I was just blind emailing gallerists around Atlanta, like ask, being like, Hey, I thought you might be interested in this yeah. work because I didn't know, I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. Um, so you'd recommend not, don't do that. I recommend, I mean, not doing that, but it's just like everyone responds to, to things differently. I mean, I feel like the gallery scene is so broad now like there are some galleries who might respond to that i don't know but uh for the most part like i feel like my first show my first like photo show i don't know if it came out of that i think it was more like i had done a residency and then this gallery um in atlanta called poem 88 gave me a solo show after I like showed them the work, but I can't remember how that, I might've actually emailed them right, or somebody right. introduced us and was like, yeah. Often with like a residency, there's like us, there's like a, a, a flow of people that kind of come through and see yeah. work and, you know, yeah. things happen from that. sounds like that's maybe what yeah. happened, but, yeah. but how interesting to hear that your first show was a photography show. I would not have guessed. Yeah. Straight <laughs> up photo. I was straight up photo for, a while. Yeah. Cause in Atlanta, it was like, I was really deep in the music scene. Like all my friends were musicians and I was just, they were asking me to take their portraits and do promo photos and like shoot their album covers. And so I was doing that for yeah. a couple of years. Yeah. 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 Let's, let's um, shift gears a little bit. You know, I think maintenance is really important and mm-hmm. uh, self care and, mm-hmm. and, and, and tending to our own needs and, you know, making sure that my health spiritually and emotionally and physically mm-hmm. is, is in order. And that's 
in my life, um, you know, my days are cut up into a series of pie slices and the slice mm-hmm. for me at this point, it's just my life. I have two small children. Yeah. That slice for me is pretty small, but I'm trying to cool. widen that pie um, okay. because maintenance is important. So uh, mm-hmm. I'm curious how you think about maintenance and self-care and mm-hmm. if like what you do outside of researching art, um, yeah. you know, cause we're multidimensional people. We have other interests. Um, yeah. And when I put it out like that, what do you think on, on self-care and maintenance for artists or for yeah. yourself? I really love this question because, um, I think it's really hard sometimes, especially in like the social media realm that we many, so many of us traffic in just to support and promote our work. It's easy to think that there's nothing else outside of that, (laughs) at least for other people. Um, But I'll start out by saying, I think it's really important, especially for artists and creative people to talk about not just mental health, but also like physical health. There's this really incredible video that Azalea Banks posted about DMX on Instagram. It's incredible. I was Mm -hmm. like, thank God somebody is saying something about this because it talks about like this fundamental lack of support that not just recording artists, but artists in general, especially in the U S have to contend with. It's just like this extractive process where you're just like making stuff and expected to like maintain these like types of production that are really, really unsustainable. And for many people, like unrealistic, like they're just dangerous. And so um, I, you know, for many years have kind of gone and like suffered from like low grade depression, sometimes low grade to like clinical, you know, and the pandemic did not help <laughs> that situation at all. Um, but I have recently kind of been paying a lot more attention to how I structure my time and also like tuning into what time of day my brain is doing what specific thing and planning my, my activities around my body (laughs) and like what my body's doing and like what the optimal times are for certain things. And like, I'm extremely grateful and privileged to be able to plan my day and my schedule in that way. But yeah, it's taken me a really long time to kind of get to that point. And I should also mention like, I'm sober. I've been sober for over 11 years now. Um, so, you know, the issue of, I think like substance abuse, especially among artists is a really important topic and something to think about. Yeah. There, I have all these like self-care regimens now. It's like before I even touch my phone or look at an email, I've been awake for like three hours. I've meditated. I've exercised. I've had breakfast. That's great. I mean, three hours before you touch a screen. uh, It's amazing. Important. I mean, just like on a cellular level. And this is like very recent. Same thing when I go to sleep. I try not to, I try to have my phone like 
nowhere near the bed for like an hour before I go to sleep. So I read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So That's I like great. read really like technical theoretical stuff in the morning and then like fiction at night. That's great. Yeah. You know, the, yeah, the, the mind body connection and physiology in that. Yeah. I think people under appreciate that or maybe, oh maybe yeah. don't respect it as enough because the body holds the brain yeah. Uh, there is a symbiotic relationship there. Um, yeah. Yeah. All that stuff about like the biome and. And sleep, sleep. And I'm really sleep. big on sleep these days, which yeah. is hard for me with kids, but oh, uh, yeah. sleep is huge for me as well. So important. Yeah. If I don't get like seven to eight hours, my day is ruined. Like yeah. I can barely function. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, so this is a big question and, mm-hmm. and, and and also maybe kind of tropey, but I want to ask because I think mm-hmm. it, it's important. I've been thinking about like what art is for me. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. for me, it's a way to figure out what I believe in. It's a way for me yeah. to play. I think pl- mm-hmm. like play is really big in, in mm-hmm. my practice. Mm-hmm. It's a way for me to understand myself. Um, and it's a way mm-hmm. to process the world around me. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, what art will mean for me tomorrow might be different. But I'm curious what art is for you. I want to quote someone. This is someone who is a friend in Atlanta who I actually haven't spoken to in a really long time. But one of my first studio visits wasn't really a studio visit. It was like I had done this show and then they came to look at the show. Um, This writer, Cinque Hicks, who I think is still in Atlanta. And we were walking through the show um, that I'd done and we were just talking about what is art like what what is art like what is it to you and Sinke said this thing that has stuck with me for it's probably been 12 years now um, and he said art is art provides a framework or a new tool set that allows you to see the world differently it's just like a, an offering up of a reframing. And I've always really liked that um, definition, but I would add to that and also say that when I think of my work, like to go back to an earlier thing I said about like the the way that I think of work, the work is always remaining open. Like I think of the work that I do as like invitations to conversations, like they feel really discursive to me. And like really social, like deeply, profoundly social. Um, And I think that also just has to do with my, like I studied archaeology in college. So I'm like sort of like an archaeologist by training and some digs. But like there's always that understanding that like material and the things that we leave behind or like leave in our absence, right? Like if we're thinking about a work that's in a gallery and you're not there. It's like those become conversations with whoever is experiencing the object or the work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's great. That's great. It's kind of just a reminder that, you know, art is an object. It's also an action, but even maybe Mm -hmm. before those two, it's an outlook. Yeah. It's a lens. I like that. This is the last question. um, Okay. But (laughs) I like to ask, artists if they have any 
pieces of culture that they're excited about or recommendations, whether it be a book or a film. Mm-hmm. Um, does anything come to mind uh, when I put this put this out there? Oh my gosh, yes. I have been telling everyone I know about this writer who I won't say recently discovered. So my friend who's a, an artist, Nicole Miller, really incredible video film artist, um, recommended the sci-fi writer Ted Chiang to me. I'm obsessed with his writing. I just finished that compilation, Stories of Your Life and Others. And it just, every story just blew me away. It was just like my brain was breaking. They're not all like this, but it's this like combination of religious text and like references to spirituality and science fiction. And I've never read a story that physically made me feel dizzy. Yeah. And it was like, I just could not stop reading it. Like I was having like a real physical reaction to this story, but he's an incredible writer and like so smart and like such a crazy amount of research that goes into those stories. He's on my list, um, you know, in my stack. And they're, they're like short stories. They're collections of short stories too. So they're digestible for people who are getting intimidated by like big, big, thick sci-fi books. But um, he's on my list of people I'm trying to check out. I listened to an interview with him recently. I'll share it with you. I'll oh, get it to you separately. Do. But it's, that's what opened yeah. me up to him. I was like, whoa, this oh, is a mind. This is a mind yeah. I want to spend more time with. Yeah. Um, and that movie Arrival was based on right. um, a story he wrote. A short story. Yeah. yeah. Story of your life actually was the name of that one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but he, uh, I, I feel really excited about that writing. That's something that's just been like just blowing my mind. Great. Well, Nikita, this has been absolutely wonderful to, to speak with you and learn more about your work. You know, I, I, I can't wait to, uh, see more of what's coming next. This idea of noise and silence is sticking with me. I'm going to spend some time thinking about that. So thank you. And uh, thank you for participating in this project. It's been great. No, thank you so much. I think this is such, it feels like a really important document that you're creating too. Thanks. Thanks, Nikita. We've made it to the end. A quick reminder that you can learn more about each contributing artist, find links to their online portfolios, and access the archive of past recordings by visiting deepcolorpodcast.com. Be sure to share this project within your community and rate and subscribe in the Apple Podcast directory or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and check back soon for a new episode.